0: Welcome to Making It, our weekly podcast on building a great business right here in Egypt, brought to you by Enterprise. This season is sponsored by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives.
1: What do you call 5,000 lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. Now, this is not a call to violence against lawyers, so please don't sue us. But let's be honest lawyers are not a popular bunch. At least, as portrayed in pop culture, they're vultures and their practice comes off as dry, impersonal, and needlessly Byzantine. But if you're a service provider, you actually have more in common with a law firm than you might think. We know our parent company does. You both essentially sell people's time and their experience. And people are complicated. We each have personal goals, and we all have personal relationships that impact our professional lives and how we serve clients. Starting a service business, whether it's a clinic, an agency, or a law firm, is almost never done with the intention of selling the business. And while there are some exceptions, most service industry companies here never create traditional corporate structures, let alone plan for an exit. Now here in Egypt, law firms have evolved into a peculiar beast. The practice is centered around cults of personality, and there isn't an accepted model for compensation or billing. The business is cutthroat and individualistic, and the ultimate sign of success is having your name written on the wall. Today, we explore these common challenges with Dr. Bahe al a professor of law and a practicing lawyer who in 2003 established Al-Addeen, and Partners, a firm that specializes in corporate law and provides counsel to major national and global institutions. In this reflection on the service industry at large, we take a broader look at how in a country of 100 million people, where most people work in services, service providers hardly ever lobby for their interests. We also discuss the dynamics of attracting the right talent, and creating a culture that keeps them on board for the long haul, as well as the challenges facing leaders who need to distance themselves from day-to-day work and focus on building a people business. Here's Behe, speaking to Patrick, Enterprise's editor-in-chief and co-host of Making It.
2: Beheh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So tell me, man, who is your favorite fictional
3: lawyer? I think it has to be Harvey Specter out of the suits. Everyone talks about it, yeah. and he's seen so elegant, so nice, practice looks so neat. Of course, as fictional as it gets, but I think it has to be <laughs> that guy. And what about
2: in literature? Literature. This I have to think. I've seen a lot of John Grisham on your bookshelves. Yeah, yeah. He's not a fictional lawyer, but yeah. he's a lawyer.
3: He is, he is, he is. I mean, I like all his writings and his stuff, all the legal stuff. And it's, it's really fascinating, and I think he as well has taken law practice into sort of a different uh, dimension with uh, people from different disciplines.
2: Okay. So your career is reasonably atypical these days in that you went through education, you uh, went all the way to PhD and your are Dr. behat, you returned to Egypt and worked again as a practitioner. And then you set out not just to have your own office, but to build a corporate firm, a firm that specializes in corporate law, but a firm that isn't the office of a solo practitioner. What made you decide that you wanted to
3: strike out and hang out your own shingle? I think chance plays a big part in one's life. From graduation, I joined the Shalakanilo office and I was really inspired by Ali Shalani and the way he he's tried to, he's always aspired to have law firms as a business, to be run as a company, to have people doing marketing and finance and human resources and stuff like that. So I think it became a sort of a market necessity, especially in the corporate world, not to have the office of Mr. So-and-so who's so inspirational, but rather to have law being practiced by a group of people through different specializations. I think that was a necessity as opposed to any sort of vision on my part.
2: And did you have already in mind the model of the firm?
3: We knew that we're in the corporate world. We knew uh, that we're serving sort of banks and companies and stuff. But remember, the story of corporate lawyers is the story of the Egyptian economy. There's always new laws dictating new practices and new issues that companies are facing, which we had to quickly adapt to to be able to advise companies or litigate around them.
2: And so that led to specialization and sort of...
3: I think so. I think that forced a lot of firms, and a lot of people to say, you know what, I do this. I have our special departments that do maybe intellectual property, maybe competition law and the like.
2: I've been looking forward to having you in
3: today because at the end of the
2: day, a law firm is a service provider, right? It is. And in that respect, you know, as special as each and every one of us in our disciplines think we are, a lawyer is an accountant is a software development house, is a restaurant you're providing at the end of the day, a service. And read the headlines, read any issue of enterprise, you're going to hear about investment incentives for exporters. You're going to hear about export incentives for these same exporters. You're going to hear about how manufacturers need help and manufacturers need this. It's not often anybody talks about a tax break for a service provider. It's not often that anybody talks about uh, giving us tub-tubs because we've exported a service to the Gulf or to Europe, um, that you helped a London-based company do business in Egypt and were paid in Egypt for, for that service. And yet, we're a nation of 100 million people, If there's one thing we're good at, it's population growth. Uh, You would think that people being an asset, service industry is something we want to push. And yet we don't seem to do this.
3: Look, several issues here. Now, the service industry in itself is not doing itself justice. I think we as law firms or accountancy firms, we're so focused on, you know, our billable hours, our cost and issues of our clients that we tend to think less about how we as a service industry are positioned collectively. Okay. Maybe when issues like when it hits the bottom line, people start to think collectively in terms of the VAT, how does it apply? Which clients free zone, not free zone? Does it apply to foreign clients? How do you define it? Group of lawyers work on the same file. Do they pay VAT twice or not? There are several issues where we really got together when it hit the bottom line. But in terms of positioning ourselves, And to lobby in terms of we have needs, I don't think we do that.
2: One of the things that makes a service business fundamentally different is that we don't have factory floors, we don't have production lines, we have people. So let's unpack people for a second and talk about first off, how do you Recruit as a service industry, and this is applicable. It doesn't matter that you know you are a successful lawyer. This applies to software development houses. This applies to public relations agencies, to accountancies, uh, to restaurants. Um, it's all about the human talent. So, how do you bring in the best talent you can
3: possibly bring in? Big issue to find talent. Very challenging for all law firms, especially talent that are like five, six years of work experience. Okay. They're, when they're good, they travel all over, so they can be recruited by different companies. We have competition, of course, from companies you know wanting in-house counsel. Word of mouth is the key factor today for us recruiting people. Someone says, I met someone, he's very good, he's finished his uh, studies, he's looking for work, stuff like that. Some personal recommendations it, from other it, people. It's, for us, it goes a long way. You have collectively done pretty well at deciding
2: we need to have marketing departments. Um, do you guys have an HR department, a people person?
3: No, I think we have an office manager that part of her job is to to do that. Bringing
2: on our first head of people has been transformative for us in terms of not just what it has freed up senior partners and managers to do, but in terms of having somebody whose fundamental job is create culture and help you attract the best and brightest. You know, it seems you guys have borrowed a lot from other industries, but maybe sort of
3: running a little bit behind on that. You're correct. I mean, if we are to run law firms as a business, I think we need to have all aspects of business in terms of people doing finance, people doing human resources, people doing actual management and marketing. And again, one of the factors that have shaped up corporate law in Egypt, as I told, they're the founding fathers like Ali Shalani and Zaki Hashim. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the international law firms. They came in, they pushed out of us as local firms you know, to do better, to aspire to do at least, you know, the good things that they do. They've raised the competitive threshold. I think, I think they have. Hmm. I think they have. And uh, of course, you know, each one, they'll have their complaints and problems. But again, they've raised the bar for, you know, that we need to run it as a business.
2: Let's back up for a second and we'll be a little bit transparent with listeners. You and I met years and years and years ago on a transaction, a really interesting transaction, but we've only become friends because we've been talking to each other about how to build a better business as service providers. What do you think is the primary obstacle for a lot of, you know, really talented, really smart partners who are, you know, running good firms What's the barrier that prevents them from getting to the next level where they formally break with, I don't advise clients anymore. I don't practice law anymore. I'm in charge of the strategy, the culture, the I don't know what, the things that I think are important at my firm. What has to happen in your day that makes that possible? It's something that you're working on that you've done a pretty good job at.
3: I'm not sure. I mean, maybe I'm not giving it enough time. Maybe I don't want to let go. Maybe I enjoy the excitement of, uh, you know, being in negotiations and transactions and maybe. Maybe I don't feel I'm trained enough to do go on the strategy level. But again, I think what's keeping us, I think we need to be more determined on really acting as managing partners or chairmen of companies as opposed to being engaged in day-to-day work. It's just that letting go that we just still have to let go. Do yeah.
2: How do you convince clients to let you go?
3: It's the talent that comes, yani, those making partners. Once they they like that person his or her work, I think it just lets goes naturally. They accept them yeah. instead of you. And remember, in clients, there are generational changes as well. I remember what you're talking about here, we're facing with our clients, you're family business, you need to have corporate governance and this and that. So they have the same problems we're having. So maybe their second generations or third generations will fit well with our... With your changing culture. Exactly.
2: Yeah. You can't prevent one person from deciding that they want to leave. Correct. Right. But you can create a culture where staying has benefits you can create a system of financial rewards and incentives where staying you know is in your narrow personal interest and i think you can get it to the point where on the whole most people would rather stay
3: than leave easier said than done because at oh, the sorry? end of the day if someone is offering double the salary there's very little you can do in terms of the cultural the you owe the firm. They trained you. You like your colleagues and stuff like that. So sometimes it's the money aspect that you know goes a long way in one's decision to leave one firm or another. In terms, is that of, the
2: number one reason why lawyers leave?
3: I think so. Really? I definitely. Money. Think so. I definitely think so. And getting these sort of offers either from in-house. Yeah. So and in- look,
2: I, mean, I think the the in-house thing is hard,
3: right? Um,
2: because. The grass is always greener on the other side. You see lots of people, corporate side, who dream of setting up their own agency, their own firm, their own accountancy, their own whatever. Uh, And then you see people who get to a point in their career in the business and think, you know what would be freaking lovely right now? (laughs) A steady paycheck. Correct. So, you know, I think that cuts both ways. But why do you allow the competition to be about money?
3: I think it's not us allowing it, of course, you can always say that you know what if you pay your your lawyers well they'll go nowhere and in these you know difficult times where you know it's uh, money has a long way to go, especially if you're like a ten year graduate or a ten year practitioner, you would have to think about by your family obligations and and the like so so yes, i mean it's it's part of the culture and the industry that you know people will move around, whether after that they'll think you know what, I was happier there. And then the definition of happy is that, you know, I was maybe respected. I was under pressure of where are your billable hours? You didn't bill that. You're not getting your salary this month because your billables are not so good. And that billable culture, it's accepted elsewhere. But still, Egyptian clients have a problem to that.
2: And they accept it only in law. Exactly. And, and the the one, body, they, they grudgingly
3: accepted. It. it may be grudging, but they accepted in law. They I, accept I, it nowhere else. I go else. back to Ali Bishal Aani. He used to say, you know what? Is a lawyer who's slower than me in solving the problem gets more money than me. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'm smart. I solve the problem in three hours. I get three hours of billable and the other guy gets 10. Sometimes, and sometimes Egyptian clients just don't get it. You take the figure, multiply it by exchange rate, it gets all you are. So I sit with you, say hello on the phone and stuff like <laughs> that. How much did you charge me to say exactly, hello? Exactly. Skip the pleasantries. <laughs> How do you keep them?
2: on board for the longest time possible. We've talked about why they leave. They leave for money. But what makes them stay?
3: I think what makes them stay is that they believe they're challenged. They believe they're in an environment that's friendly. We're a business. We have pressure, but it's a friendly environment. And we try to listen to them as far as possible. What are your issues? What are your challenges? What do you feel you're better? Are you feeling you're improving? And I think as long as they're improving, adequately compensated and treated well, they stay. How do you teach You're a professor,
2: but how do you teach in your practice? How do you find time to create opportunities for new lawyers to, or experienced lawyers, to learn something new?
3: I think I ought to be doing more internally at our firm. You personally, Yes, I think I, I think I ought to do more because there are a lot of things that I go teach and give seminars and public talks about that I ought to be doing internally. But I think that what we do and think we do best is when we work on a specific file. So we try to take the sort of the discipline in law and try to explain it. Whether we're doing capital market or we're doing Islamic sukuk now or funds, so we try to take the law from its beginning. Here's the, what the law says. Let's understand the law. Let's understand the practice. Maybe understand the international experiences, say like sukuk, and then we start, you know, drafting. And uh, so that's it. And learning so it's sort of on the fly, built, built into the beginning. Yes, I think so. Pie. I think so. So I might sound very academic in terms of, you know, let's take this from its origin. This starts from the laws of obligation and then goes here and goes uh,
2: But it's the same thing with us at the investor relations side of the business. You know, our people get a new client in a new industry. You go back to square one. Exactly. How do you make money in petrochemicals? How do you make money in pharma? How do you make money in distribution? What are the market characteristics? You do the industry analysis before you do the company analysis. Sure. So similar in that respect. So yeah. I was going to ask this later, but how is life working from home? I mean, you guys are back to work. I know that now, but how and, and, was and, and work talk from talk
3: about second lockdown, but anyway, what, <laughs> 18th of March, 18th of March. So first 10 days of March, you know, let's sanitize this, let's sanitize everything. Mm-hmm. And then 18th, we shut down. Oh, working from home is beautiful. We love it. It's so efficient. So March, April, Ramadan came and then... The hours were really longer, we're efficient, clients were okay. But once we came back mid-July, work was horrible. We see each other, we talk with each other, we sh- we engage humanly.
2: Balance and you know, a defined start and end to the workday is wonderful. It's that discipline.
3: But working hours, not working hours. And again, forget about what we feel. We're service providers. Mm-hmm. Forget about our thoughts, it don't count. We cannot serve clients better. Through the Zooms and Teams and, and this and that, wanting to see the client and stuff like that.
2: Uh, we've been saying for months and months now that culture is made in the office and tested on work from home.
3: I, I fully agree with that. You know, we is have, that
2: your words of wisdom? Sadly, yes. Okay, uh, copyright, copyright. Um, I'll have a chat with my lawyer. You can <laughs> prepare the file. Like, um, it's weird. We actually have right now because we're not back at the office yet. At Ink Tank and at Enterprise, we have people that we've hired that none of us have met face-to-face. It's a person who's a name in the Slack channel, a name on the Teams channel, uh, you know, a face when we do a video call, a phone call, but we actually haven't spent time together. And it's why we're doing you a couple see- days a month in the office this month. But don't
3: you see that they've been overrating how beautiful work from home is? And I love yeah. it and I have my tea and I see this. No. Look, it's harder for me to... See the difference with
2: Enterprise because Enterprise has always had a day shift from the office and a night shift from home. We run 22 hours a day uh, where we have somebody on duty. Should we say
3: happy birthday, Enterprise? You're Uh, celebrating six six of balloons here in the studio.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, and we were built to work remotely as Enterprise. Ink Tank is different because we provide service. We are never going to go back. We, Ink Tank Enterprise, are never going to go back, I don't think, to a five-day work week. And the staff are going to hear this for the first time here. Um, You know, we've had a chat with Noha, who's our really awesome head of people who joined us two weeks before we went on work from home. And our plan right now is that everybody will have a certain allocation of days every month where they will work from home. So we're going to do a three or
3: four day work week in the office. Regardless of COVID. Regardless of COVID. When we come back. We don't want to sound ungrateful. Some people lost their jobs. So if working from home is for us to survive and keep our businesses running, we're grateful and happy. But don't come and tell me, you know what, we love it. It's beautiful. I don't, think, I don't think any of us love it, but read having it, a it, bit it. more flexibility is a good thing. Google kid working from home and you see, and there's a lot of press and pressure. It's, it's beautiful. It's great. Whether these are by the tech companies or the Zooms no, of the world? No. Look, who does this work for?
2: I think almost exclusively companies that create, that use people to create an intangible product. Sure. Okay. Software houses, design agencies where face-to-face can be replaced by the use of the written word. It can be replaced by voice calls, video calls, but you don't necessarily have to be in the same place to make your client happy. Or to make another person in your firm understand what you're that's saying. You,
3: you've been seeing the literature or what's being written about the end of the office, the future yeah, of the office. That's all that, that was That's very interesting. You've seen that, say, sort of like in April, May, June. I don't, I don't read it any longer now. And yeah, office is important. Office is, uh, as you said, Yanni. how do you guys structure your compensation? We try to see what competition is doing, what other colleagues are doing, get that figure. And then have it as a starting thing and then try to build on it. If you have two years experience, you do more, do that. But that's for the entry. After that, it's performance, really, that dictates stuff. I mean, the person is uh, managing a whole uh, file, client is happy, client pays well. would like to give them a share of that at the end of the year. So variable compensation matters? It does indeed. Okay.
2: How much of the average sort of five-year, six-year practitioner, uh, how much of their comp
3: is fixed versus how much is variable? I think it's around seventy-five percent fixed and twenty-five uh, variable. percent variable. Okay, all right. In my opinion,
2: the least fun thing to do as a service provider is to fire somebody. On those Horrible. days, I will literally go to the bathroom, <laughs> vomit, and then go do the deed. Uh, how'd you fire somebody? If your people are listening to this, right? <laughs> To <laughs> so guys, if you hear me vomiting it's okay. this afternoon, you know, something bad it is It won't change your decision, but you know,
3: no. that's how it's very difficult because you remember when we were talking about retention, you create a certain personal relationship with each member of the firm. Uh, luckily enough, in some situations, the people we wanted to go, they just left. Uh, they opt themselves they out. All the, yeah. But if we have to do it, it's so difficult. I mean, I, I don't go as far as you do, but emotionally, probably I do. It's, it's very difficult. The emotional thing needs to take uh, the back seat. It's
2: hard. You know, these two forces are in opposition to each other. Emotionally, you are invested in your people and they're your people and you do act like it's a family. Yeah. But then when it's time to part ways, that, you know, the cold imperative to... But that
3: shouldn't be the case if we, as I told you, if we're running it as a, a big factory, producing every day, of I don't of hours. think I want
2: to run a business as a big factory, though. I would rather not be as big... Mm -hmm. not be as quote unquote successful and feel happy
3: and clean coming to work each day. I mean, it's about that definition of happiness that, uh, you know, people have different views on. Absolutely. Look, would it be nice to have a business
2: that in the future could be monetized? Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like everybody, I think I'm going to live forever. So, you know, (laughs) it's not an issue uh, that I need to think about today uh, as 50 bears down on me. Uh, But, You want to feel comfortable coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, service providers are in this weird gray zone uh, where there's no clear definition. Broadly accepted of success. Correct. You have exceptions to that. You have your fresh fields which become global giants, right? You have your Danny, what's his name, who takes you know uh, Gramercy Tavern and turns it into a publicly traded restaurant business. You have your PwCs and your KPMGs. But the vast majority of people who are setting out to start a service business don't have an IPO mm. in their cards. They don't have an acquisition in their cards, they don't even have a clear textbook that says this is how you build a business as opposed to monetize your exactly. personal labor. It's a labor. monetization
3: bit that you don't see monetization. That's yeah, an issue. exactly. I mean, you're going every day. Yeah, we envy other businesses because in a sense, they go every day and they're building on something. Our value is a multiple of what and this yeah. and this and that. While our businesses that supports them and does this is unable to do that. I'm not sure even the monetization worldwide in different firms, how it's done. But for our firms, it is still uh, an issue. So are there
2: types of businesses that could never be sold?
3: And is law one of them? I think it is.
2: It's the second or third time I use the example, but how has a Freshfields, for example, grown globally?
3: That's a long story, but that's a long story. Some of them are over 100 years old, I think, or something like that. But I mean, the big story is to the last 50 years where they branched out, They're LLCs, and uh, they have a huge partner pool, and uh, they really run like a company. What about PwC? What about KPMG? What about all the ad agencies? And, uh, you know, I won't say, any not incorrect information. If you look at the turnover of the likes of, I don't know, Deloitte or something like that, the annual turnover is like, I don't know, 29, 30. I stand to be corrected, but can correct. Billion dollars a year. Yeah. So that's as big as any of the companies listed on your... Right, uh, but
2: that suggests that there is a path that can bring you to that because let's change industries for a second. Okay. You have CIB, which by US standards does not have a large market cap for a bank,
3: Mm.
2: but by local standards, I mean, it is the bloody EGX. Mm. The 30 moves up and down as CIB moves up and down. So the basic laws of economics suggest, you know, if there's a service provider globally with that type of turnover that we should be able to replicate that on our scale here in Egypt if a bank can do it if a pharma distribution company can do it if sodic as a real estate firm can do it you know if all the all the wonderful companies that we experience daily that we mm-hmm. write about daily they set out to build a model as a business so why can't we do it in law or advertising or accountancy here
3: I think we should. But remember, we're starting out by we're not lobbying enough as a service industry vis-a-vis sort of uh, tax exemptions or preferential treatment or just recognize us while making the laws that we're there and we matter and stuff like that. We still say we need a lot to do in terms of internal trainings and the like. So I think once we're all on a solid uh, platform, I think we should consider that. I mean, I like... I mean, you could ask me another way. Why isn't Egyptians being the leaders in laws and stuff like that? Why aren't we having... Egyptians wrote the laws of the GCC countries exactly, in total. Exactly. While the biggest law firms there are the UK the and UK. US one. We should be there. Sure, sure, sure. And I like what uh, Mato and Basuni are doing in terms of branching out. Branching I really out. like it's that. Smart. I think it's very good. It gives a good name to what you know, Egyptian law firms and Egyptian talent is about. I think, just like international law firms has raised the standard, I think what they are doing as well is really good. They're employing more people. They're really carrying the Egyptian flag there, and that's, I'm really proud of what they're doing.
0: Maintain it is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives.
2: You leave our office this afternoon and you go back to your place. You call together the senior partners and say, ladies and gentlemen, the goal is that we're going to build a firm that's sellable within five years. Whether there's a market then or not, we'll see. But within five years, we want to be ready to sell. What are the first three things that you're going to do?
3: I think the first thing needs to be do a health check on all the talent there. Everyone is happy, satisfied, need to recruit more. We need to fire people that won't be aligned with us on this vision. Uh, Second thing, we need to keep our lines of communication with all the international law firms we've been working with throughout the years. That you know, the relationship is healthy and there. And then to build that corporate structure and maybe getting managing partner of the firm or a partner just dedicated to overlooking this corporate transformation from all of us, our service providers, into one or two of us, you know, working towards this target. And that needs a lot of work. It's a full-time job in and of itself. It is. Yeah.
2: I think it's telling in a lot of service industries, the title CEO doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. We're all managing partners. Correct. There's not one CEO or co-CEOs and the rest of you all get in line. Um, And I think it's telling that when you read a book on leadership in the corporate world, the job description of a CEO is limited. I focus on, for example, culture. I focus on strategy and I focus on opportunity, whereas in the service industry is no. I focus on servicing clients and I focus on people and retention and it's a much broader job description and there's some shame involved almost in saying, you know, something, that's not my job. My job is to focus on this transformation. Why do you think that is?
3: Could it be about the personalization of things? Could it be that, uh, you know, a person doesn't want to let go micromanagement problems? Ah, uh, micromanagement. Uh, not having, uh, you know, a competent uh, manager or someone to look after these issues. Somebody else will never do it as well as I've done it. Yeah.
2: That's every a thing. one of us thinks that we are the smartest, most indispensable person in our firm and maybe in our industry at large uh, that's it's dangerous hard to uh,
3: take a step back uh, dangerous that
2: but is... you can't grow until you take that step back. What is your number one piece of advice to somebody who's starting today, number one, a law firm, number two, any other service business. If you could give that founder of a new firm one piece of advice, what would it be? I
3: think the first thing is. What is it that you want to achieve? Forget about saying how it looks in five years and that stuff. Really, what is it that I want to do? Do I want to be a 50 person law firm, 100 stuff like that? Make sure you invest in IT as early as possible. Infrastructure is very important, worth the investment. Try to specialize in something. So you say, I'm that law firm that does intellectual property. I'm that law firm that does that. Yeah, that's my main advice, someone opening their law firm now. But again, I really think about why open a law firm where there are a lot of big law firms that, you know, that talented person, he or she can affiliate with. It's uh, if we're talking about bigger, if you're part of a bigger machine that's already there, you get yourself a good deal, you get yourself a partnership, go there. The law firms are there, they're big and they want to expand. But, I mean, surely there are a
2: few other lawyers out there who have an
3: entrepreneurial bone in their body, right? Sure. But why, why isn't they take the thing and be young blood in an existing uh, organization?
2: Maybe this is self-serving because I was, what, 32, I guess, when I founded my first business. I think it's nonsense. To say that I'm graduating university and going to start a business. What do you know about anything to go do that? And there are lots of people who prove me wrong every day. Okay. But that's my point of view. Um, You need to know a little bit about the world and about your industry before you can have a thesis for why you should create something. But I also think the ultimate act of creativity and business is to build your own firm. Sure. Is to create your own thing, whether that's an app, whether that is a law firm, whether that's an advertising firm, uh, a music label, whatever. The ultimate act of creativity is to say, I know what I am and I know what I'm not, and I'm going to do the thing that makes me happy and that I'm the best at because I see that market opportunity, and I'm going to create something and give others a chance to thrive
3: within it. Sure. Now I take nothing out of this argument. What I'm saying normally in the law business. What happens is that person who's 33, 35, has probably worked with one or two or three of the law firms Mm -hmm. and quite frustrated in some aspect of how business is done there. So say, you know what? All of them are the same. I'm going to establish my own law firm. And 20 years later, he'll be exactly like that. He's going to be the same. So maybe my advice to them is consider, talk to different law firms Hmm. and tell them, I want to do this that way. Maybe they'll create a department for you, create that, and you'll be happy. With their existing infrastructure, they'll be happy with your new blood and new sort of stamina and energy. I think there are sensible managing partners in different law firms that are willing to listen. And of course, will always appreciate a story of growth. Okay. So you think the it door is, is open? I think it is. But again, you'd find that person saying, I'll open my own law firm or... I'll go, you know, partner w- with this firm or that, but you know, guarantee with for me a huge amount of money. So sometimes they look at being with law Where's firms. The entrepreneurial at, risk. Exactly. So when they're on their own, they take the risk. When they join law firms, they not necessarily want to take the same level of risk. That's a problem. It is. But they take in mind, in mean, I Egyptians' entrepreneurship. We're still trying to learn what I mean, all this is about. Mean, I mean, it's uh, we sometimes confuse what I deserve and what I get. So. Sometimes when you're in a business, you have to understand that that business takes certain risks and gives certain rewards. And there's going to be delayed gratification. Exactly. So to appreciate that sort of the economics of how a law firm runs. You say, no, they pay me less. I'm not appreciated. I leave. The managing partner, the owners of the firm, the equity partners, just people look at balance sheets and in and out cash flow every day to manage it. And it's been very difficult in the past six months to make both ends meet. Of course. Paying your salaries on time and your VAT and your tax and this and that. So it, it is this sort of psychological issue that, well, that's what I meant by the non-entrepreneurship mm. in mind. Go talk. Why don't people talk? I have a better offer. I'm doing this. I believe I'm this. And we talk. It's this lack of, uh, while we're personalizing and we're talking every day yeah, and we're but, making. And
2: this is something that I see in a lot of businesses like ours. Um, there's an inability for me to put myself in your shoes. I want more money from you. What do I need to give you in return so that I get
3: more money? What value am I going to create for you Best. to make it it's worth your you. while? What well, we're always telling them, our employer is the client. Absolutely. We forget that. Yeah. So you say, oh, the managing partner or the partners, the senior partners, they determine the bonuses, who's doing that. But now I say it's the same pool of money coming from clients. This needs to be appreciated. And this is a lot of times missed. And people leave firms and get frustrated and for no reason. What's the most important thing to retaining that client for the long term? And that you're sure that you care, that he's not, he or she or this company is not a file hmm. that we have. We care for you. We care for your business. And we're really passionate about it.
2: Personal connection. What's the most challenging thing about dealing with a client?
3: Sometimes the clients will want things that not necessarily is in his or her best, best interest, interest. And you have to take time say, you know what, why don't we wait? Why don't we do that? Oh, so you're busy. I don't want to do it. Yes, do. <laughs> <laughs> But the more long-term you stay with the clients, we have a modus operandi that, you know, how it works and stuff like that. And you pay the price off but over weekends and late nights that, you know what, we have an MOU that we want to sign. And no. you told us not to sign <laughs> before getting reviewed. But again, clients are getting sophisticated. They're employing very intelligent in-house counsel. I mean, we believe that, you know, dealing with inside counsels, it makes our life much easier in terms of, uh, that appreciate the value of work. Call us when it's really needed because sometimes a client will call you when, you know, they don't necessarily need you. Just security blanket. Yeah.
2: How has work-life balance changed pre and post COVID? I mean, what you just said about nighttime and weekend phone calls sort of, you know, resonates with me. Um, has that changed for the better or the worst?
3: No, I think it's the same. It's just uh, a different uh, way of torture. And the clients will call you. One of the things I just pre and post COVID is using WhatsApp for, you know, here's a document. Why don't what's you read it? WhatsApp is not a work channel. I- I'm not sure how to say that in a nice way. I mean, what's wrong
2: with the email? Just I'll say-, say it for you. <laughs> I need to help you properly. And how I help you properly is part of a disciplined process that no, starts with a uh,
3: no, what, an email uh, what, Or that voice note for five minutes.
2: I mean, I... I tell everybody I know, don't send me voice notes because I don't listen to them. Or at least we can do something. Voice notes should not exceed 15 like, seconds. What? Now, you have the why, a, why not 15 you, seconds? You the, how can I be on a conference call and get a WhatsApp with a voice note and triage like... You have a genuine problem. Your <laughs> building is on fire. I need to get off this call versus you sending me a note saying, you know, hey, want to
3: have dinner tomorrow? <laughs> Come on. And people drag you into groups that you're not interested in them. And if you uh, remove yourself, uh-huh. why you, did you move? Mute for one year. No, it's all muted. Mute all notifications no, no, for no, one year. No, but they are. But they tell you, no, we are a group now. We are the buyers and the sellers. We're putting stuff in a group with the lawyers. And then the group ends up with morning greetings and Friday greetings and then the business. And it's, uh, that's one of the difficult things pre and post. And you going to wonder, when you make stuff,
2: do you get interrupted like that as well? Or is that something that's unique to you know, the service industry?
3: I think it's unique. I don't know. But I think for us, because we're dealing with clients every day, hmm. we're gonna WhatsApps every day. Anybody listening out there who sends me a voice note, <laughs> I am not listening
2: to it. Um, what two or three numbers are on your
3: dashboard that tell you about the health of your business? First, away from the finances that we need to check to, for payrolls and stuff, is that number of clients complaining or having an issue with a lawyer or a matter that's important. Which for... you can't track if it comes in on WhatsApp. Thank you for this <laughs> intervention. We're going to keep this as a recurring theme huh, for the whole thing. You no, know, WhatsApp, <laughs> That's one thing, correct.
2: Mm. Uh, so client complaints, unhappy yeah, people. Yeah,
3: very important to see that. Another number is sort of new clients, new matters from existing clients. How are they doing? And of course, deadlines. Deadlines for court cases, for arbitrations, for deals. I don't know if I put this in
2: Enterprise a couple of weeks ago, or if it's still sitting in my clippings file to put in. Great quote on Twitter. A guy writes into Dear Abby saying, I really want to study medicine, but I'm 50 years old and it's going to take me five years to get through med school and finish my internship. What do I do? And Dear Abby writes back saying, how old will you be in five years if you don't go to medical school? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Time marches on. If you're lucky, you're still here in five years time. What would you do tomorrow if you couldn't be a lawyer? Maybe
3: I don't know, but it's. Uh,
2: I, th- I always pictured you as an art dealer.
3: Oh, uh, I talk about my favorite. <laughs> my <laughs> yeah. favorite. I loved it. Well, I wish I can do something using the sort of legal uh, learning to try to not regulate, to really put it into an orderly market the art market. The art market. Yeah, uh, I've heard your talk and things. I think I'll interview with uh, Lena of Art Yeah, Hisham, my co host. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I in think it's, one. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, a lot of people, you know what what contact has done to the car industry yep. before contact was there was you open the Friday newspapers and look which cars, how much, and then phone them and then go to them. She's doing something. and I think she needs to be encouraged and others to take in place is that you need to get Egyptian art. It's fantastic, really historically. And today, lovely artists out there, they're struggling. Mm-hmm. They don't have proper warehousing. They cannot insure it. There's no catalogs because there's no bank finance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. What the likes of Lina are doing and uh and Ibrahim Picasso is doing and Gamal Issa. There are a lot of other people out there they're reading to it. but again, it is an industry and you need to do it. But again, just like we're talking about over yeah. you need to be run as a business. So you need to have proper art galleries, not owned by one person. We need to get more exhibitions. Uh you need to have transparency about pricing so to have Price a market. So the market is just what few people say. Hmm. The art and the artists. Artists are not taking the right place. I mean, I won't compare them to footballers or stuff, but they need to be recognized and they need to be part of the Egyptian curriculum in schools and to be proud of our Egyptian artists. I thank you for this idea. Nima. <laughs> like to, I think you to, to turn the something. office into an art gallery, But, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, but it's seriously it's, something can be done. Some basic regulation, getting them together. The syndicates are there, but we just need to to sponsor them. I think more than that,
2: I I think people who have a passion for the field but who understand business
3: need to look for a way to turn it into a market. Maybe some people with a business background and some passion for art can do something to regularize this market. It's a very fragmented, primitive market. And whenever there's fragmented markets, there's an opportunity to create a market. Exactly. You have issues of insurance, what to insure and how much of proper warehousing, of proper cataloging. Ministry of culture has a lot of things, but you need to just take it a bit more to the people. You, you have to get, it's not really a luxury and, you know, have excess money and we we'll do art as opposed as part of just the beauty of life. And, and not all art is very expensive. That's not true. There are young artists out there doing beautiful work.
2: I think though, if there's not a recognized high end,
3: mm. how are we going to have a market for the lower end? Correct. Like it's, there has to be a Same recognized... applies for photographers. Ah, huh? uh, Exactly fantastic young ones. They're doing, some of them are in New York, some of them are in Spain, some are here. Fantastic photographer about Egypt and its history and stuff like that. And that's one of the edges we have as Egyptians and we need to celebrate and to enjoy. Beha, thank you very much for coming in today, man. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it, Patrick. And wishing you all the best and happy sixth birthday for Enterprise. Thank you, sir.
0: If you enjoyed this week's episode, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. This season is brought to you by CIB and USAID.